just been so good to us. And, you know, and as we approach three years of ministry, it's crazy that we've been together for the most of us for three years now. And, man, this year has been a doozy, and God has been so good to us. Whether we've realized it or not, the fact that we're able to gather here together in this place, um, man, is just a blessing from God. You know, and I believe with all my heart, with all my soul, you know, that song we sang, um, you know, my wife jokes with me all the time. She tells me that I have to listen to a song for three to four years before we actually ever sing it uh, in our, with our worship team. But, you know, that song, Establish the Work of Our Hands, that was a song that I heard. And, man, as we started this church, it just took on a whole new meaning because my prayer was that, God, this would just be so much more for you and so much less about what I want, what's comfortable for me, what's successful in my eyes. God, you established the work. The Bible tells us that man can plan his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so I just pray with all my heart that every single thing we do would be for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom and the good of his people. And I think that's Paul's heart in the book of Galatians as we continue this morning in chapter 2. We finish out chapter 2 as we prepare to really get into the meat of, of his teaching on the justification and faith in the next, uh, next two chapters, or the next three chapters. And I really hope and pray that you come this morning with an open heart and mind. I'll pray for you this morning. You know, and uh, it, it's so funny that we're kind of in this book, and I don't necessarily plan it this way, but, you know, this week is Reformation Week, uh, with the 31st being considered Reformation Day, where the, the landscape of religious history changed over 500 years ago for us today. And we are where we are today because of that moment over 500 years ago when one man was able to say, and would be the beginning of, of several other men who would say that, this is not right and that that God has called us to an understanding of his love and his grace and his mercy on a level deeper than religious ceremonies and rituals that it is bigger than that and this morning we continue to see that and I pray that we would be open to hear it where we are in our lives so Galatians chapter 2 verse 17 through 21 let's read that together but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no for no purpose. Let us pray this morning. Father God, I pray that as we approach your, have approached your throne this morning, God, we embrace your presence here with us today. Father, we come into this place with so many broken things. But God, that we know the only perfect, the only sustainable, the only true thing in this entire world or in our existence is you, our creator, our father in heaven, so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we continue to look at 
grace and what it means to be justified and made right before a holy God. Lord, I pray that we would lay aside our pride. God, I pray that we would lay aside our fears. God, I pray that we would lay aside any hindrance that keeps us from truly seeing and embracing the work that you have for each and every one of us here this morning. God, we come to you this morning as broken, sinful people in desperate need of forgiveness and your rescue. God, and we're so thankful that this morning the resounding sound is come. Come to me, all who are weak. Come to me, all who are burdened. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we love you. God, we rest in your goodness. We ask you to reveal to us the truths you have for us. Lord, in your precious name we pray. Amen. So like we've talked about, this is Paul's earliest epistle, his earliest letter uh, that would have been written to these churches in the region of Galatia as he writes to them because men have come in and started preaching a different gospel. They've started to take Jewish traditions and kind of mesh them together with Christian thought and Christian teaching, which has changed the gospel to much more than by grace alone, by faith alone, but has turned into by circumcision also, by abiding by the law also, by doing these things also. And so they've added to the gospel of salvation. And so Paul's writing back to these people to let them know that this is not right. And he calls it out because he understands that this teaching is in, is hindering their Christian freedom to step out in grace and to love their neighbor and to worship God with all their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Paul understands that this is getting in their way. And so if, if, if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to listen to the podcast to catch up. You know, week one, we talked about Paul and who he was and how he plays into this. But, uh, but man, Paul just has such a desire to fight for the freedom of Christians that we have in Christ you know, because under this other uh, way, they were not free uh, to live in Christ. And just because we talk about grace and we talk about the freedom we have in Christ, it is not a freedom to sin, but it is a freedom to live. And that's what, if I had to subtitle this morning, it would be learning to live. Learning to live. To truly live in the freedom that God has for us. And so what we've, what the whole basis of this letter is really about is laying out the, uh, the legal standing of a Christian before a holy God. The legal standing of a Christian before a holy God and how we are made right. You know, and, and how for us, the question is, how could we ever possibly be forgiven when we are guilty? Because if we truly know ourselves, we state of our heart and our minds, then we know that we make mistakes, that we fall. And so when we talk about justification, justification is, in a sense, the same thing as being clean or the opposite of polluted. But as we've, as we've seen and as we will continue to see as Paul gets even deeper into this idea of justification by faith, cleansing isn't sufficient to convey what Christ has done for us. He hasn't just cleaned us up because the idea, the, 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 the reality, that if we've sinned and Christ cleans us up, what is the likelihood that moments later we sin again, right? So just a cleansing is not enough. Just a cleansing is not enough because cleanliness alone suggests that God only accepts us because Christ cleans us up. But it's so much more than that. 
Because not only is the opposite of justification or cleanliness pollution, but the opposite of justification also is condemnation. Is a verdict. A verdict for the guilty. No matter how clean, still guilty of an offense. Still, still guilty of a rebellious action. Still guilty in a sense of treason against the authority. And so we could be clean all day, but in a sense, because we've committed a fault or a sin against the holy God, we are condemned under the law. And as the Old Testament teaching us into the New Testament shows us is that breaking the law requires a payment or a punishment of bloodshed. And so what we need more than cleaning, church, Christ has provided. More than a cleaning, he's provided an acquittal. An acquittal is when a person is not guilty of a crime that they have committed. So Christ has not only cleansed us of the stain of our sin, but he's also acquitted us of the punishment that our sin requires. That in Christ, that we are not only cleansed, but we are acquitted. And we desperately need both of those things, because if we're cleansed, we're still going to fail. We're still going to be guilty. We're still going to fall short in our sinful nature. So what we need so much more than to just wash the outside of our actions is we need an acquittal. We need a verdict that says this person is forgiven for what they have done. And not only that, but this person has received immunity moving forward that they will not be charged for the sin that they have committed. So when we talk about justification, we are talking about not only a cleaning, but a pronouncement of immunity. That that's what God has done on the behalf of those who have put their faith in the work of Christ. Read this quote this week that says this, To justify in the Bible means to of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of an acquittal and legal immunity. Paul makes it his mission in this text to correct the confusion and this confusion that confines and restricts the lives of the Christians in this region and constricts us even today. That we feel this pressure of the rules and regulations and, and reminding of our failures, reminding of our sin, reminding of those places where we're trying to earn God's approval. That we see this in the Christian faith. We see this in the secular world, this world system that tells us that there's any way that you can be good enough, an upstanding moral system, citizen enough to make it to a holy God, to find a seat at his table. And so there's two things this morning that I believe Paul is trying to teach us and show us, to instruct us on how to truly live our lives as Christians, as we're learning of our Christian lives and experience what he intends for us to experience and accomplish what he has for us to accomplish. The first thing this morning that we'll see from the text is to stop rebuilding broken down walls. To stop rebuilding broken down walls. In verse 17, Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And so this, I think, is a pretty common question that we get when we talk about the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. You know, uh, the, the, the question always is, well, then why do anything good? You know, uh, wouldn't that just be an excuse or an invitation to sin and to just do all the things that we want to do? 
And then I love, you know, for us, when we talk about the law, we understand at the simplest form, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. You know, walk your way down those Ten Commandments, and I promise you, before you get past one or two, you found yourself failing in, in, in those areas. And so if we failed in one, the Bible tells us we failed in all. And so we found ourselves guilty of the law and guilty of its requirements and, and, and requiring a payment. And so for, for Paul, when he's saying this, to be found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? The perspective is that the religious leaders would see that without the law means being a sinner. And if we don't abide by the law perfectly, is Christ promoting sin? That in their teaching, their believing, their perspective is, well, then Christ must be a proponent of sin. He must be a proponent of unrighteousness. He must be a proponent of doing all the things that hurt people and that are wrong and that are against our standards. But Paul says, I love it, just kind of a pronouncement. He's like, no, absolutely not, certainly not. Because the reality is we have not abandoned the law. Even in the New Testament covenant of grace, we have not abandoned the law. You know, Paul would even say in Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says, what, sh uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The reality of it is, is that if we look at the law, we need to look at the law as a, as a, uh, as a guide to sanctification, not a rule for the law does not save us, but the law can very well lead us on paths of holiness. The law very well can show us how to properly love God, how to properly love our neighbor. Because the law in and of itself is not bad, but the law in and of itself was never meant to save us. The law was meant to reveal to us true holiness. The law was meant to reveal to us the perfection of a holy God that we within ourselves could never truly accomplish. But because we have a loving, perfect, good God from Genesis all the way to Revelation, he's revealed to us in story after story after story a Savior character. A savior person who would take a group of people and do something for them or lead them out of a specific place or, or reveal something to someone or prof uh, prophesy something to reveal something to these people. All the way up until the New Testament where we're shown our great and mighty savior, the great and mighty high priest of all, the ones who's done it once for all, for all mankind from beginning to end. So Paul says in verse 17, he says, absolutely not. He says, if I rebuild what I've torn down, it reveals me to be a transgressor. You know, and I think that's so unique that he goes to that. You know, Paul uses this kind of illustration of building and uh, structures a lot in the Bible. And this is one of the only times when he speaks of it as if tearing it down. Because... You know, we always have to read the Bible in a sense of seeing what they're seeing from where they're seeing it at, right? So this is Paul. So when Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, he's speaking of, if I rebuild the mindsets, if I rebuild the systems, if I rebuild the actions that I lived on or that I felt like protected me before Jesus, it does not show Jesus to be wrong, but it shows me to be a transgressor. 
And you know, in, in these type of walls, these aren't the walls that protect us. These are the type of walls that confine us that he's talking about. These are the type of walls that imprison us or the type of walls that Paul is talking about here. And so for somebody like Paul, what are, what are some things that he could be speaking of? What are some walls that he could potentially rebuild that reveal him to be a transgressor. I, I think one of those things is that the first thing would be a life of trying to earn God's favor through his own actions. Paul was the best of the best of religious leaders. He busted his tail day after day, the smartest, the brightest. He was at the, the, the biggest meetings. He stood by and he did the work. He was passionate. He was zealous, he would call himself. And so in Paul's attempts to earn something from God, he was actually building up walls between him and God. Paul's faith was in the law to save him, but the law would only constantly remind him of how far he has uh, he was from that standard. You know, and I started to think about that. I don't know if you've ever played this game before, but have you ever played Shoots and Ladders? You know, that's one of the first games that we played together as a family just because it's so simple. But that stupid game is one of the most frustrating games I've ever played in my entire life. Right? You, you work hard. You roll your, I mean, work hard. You roll your dice and you move however many steps you go you roll your dice and you move all these steps and you're moving towards the, the destination. You're, you're beating each other kind of one moves this many, the other moves this many. You're getting all the way there until you get to that one slide right at the top that starts at the very top and makes you go all the way back to the beginning. That's the moment you light it on fire and you throw it in the dumpster. Listen, our Christian life, that was the life Paul was living when he was living according to the law doesn't matter how much progression he felt like he made. He always found himself coming to this point in anyone. Anyone. That's the reason they continue to fight. That's the reason it continues to be aggressive. That's the reason we continue to compete with each other when we're living by this system of if we can do good enough, work hard enough, we'll eventually get to God because we're moving and we're moving and we're moving until we come to this point where we just slide. We make a mistake and we sin or we fail. We slide all the way back down to the beginning and we feel like, well, God, God, I'm never going to make it. That's why most people who go to churches who teach this kind of mentality or we, go, we, we, we live in a world system that shows us uh, this type of lack of grace or mercy, they, people just throw up their hands. Well, there's no way I'll ever be good enough to meet the standard that I've, I've been taught or told that God has for me before I can come before him. And so if Paul rebuilds those walls, he'll be living again under shame, guilt, and the weight of the law's judgment. Something else for Paul's life as he lived according to that system. The second thing would be a life of destruction and persecution and hurt and harm and segregation from people he saw as lesser than him. His old life, his old walls, Paul was robbed of true ministry and limited his influence and outreach because it pitted him against other people. That if he were to go back to this system, he would be rebuilding walls that would divide him from other people, from divide him from people that desperately needed to hear about Jesus, that desperately needed to hear about a holy God. It would pit him actually against those people, bringing condemnation and, and hurt to those people. I mean, Paul was dragging women and children out of their homes, so-called for God. And it was because of this system that he was following. You know, in the book of Joshua, We see walls that stand between the children of Israel and the promised land where God is leading them. 
And I really believe that this is the type of walls Paul is talking about. He's talking about the type of walls that play a major role in the progression of our lives. These walls that stand between us and the promises of God. These walls that stand between us and continuing to move, continuing to grow even closer and closer and closer to the goodness that God has for us. You know, and so what did they do in the book of Joshua? It said that God told them, he said, look, you're going to march around the city silently. And then on that last day, you're going to yell, at, let out a yell. Or you're going to let out a scream. And what did God do? God crashed those walls down. God created that way for them to go. And it, but not because they did anything for it, but because through an act of faith, the people followed the commands of God and they just, they just followed him, what he was already doing, what he was already accomplishing, and God finished the work. God started it, God worked in the midst of it, and God finished it. And that is faith. That is faith in a holy God that breaks down the walls that are standing between us and getting to that place that he has promised for us, getting to that place of growth, getting to that place of experience that he has for us. Walls are barriers. Walls are cages of confinement, keeping us from moving out from under the bondage that we live in. God has so much for us, but too often and, and I will even admit in my own life the own failures of rebuilding walls that I had once left behind. Rebuilding walls that, that I'm so thankful God had broken down and then we go back to those walls and we begin to rebuild them because maybe we felt more comfortable in the confinement that those walls gave us, that we, we liked where they, where they kept us. We liked this, this faulty sense of protection. You know, it's almost like we're, we're standing in the middle. We're building up bricks. We're saying, I'm going to protect myself. The taller I get my wall, the more I'll be protected. And before we know it, we've built the wall so tall that we've shut ourselves off from the world and there's no, we feel like there's no way of escape. These are the type of walls that Paul is talking about, rebuilding. Some of us become more comfortable in our walls. You know, and not only are those walls a deterrent or they get in our way, but those walls are a distraction. You know, that's the type of work that we focus our attention on is, is rebuilding these things that we, as Christians, that we want to have left behind. Rebuilding these mindsets, rebuilding these comforts, rebuilding these, uh, these satisfactions, these empty, faulty satisfactions that we believe we need, they not only deter us, but they, they take up our time. They distract us from the true work that God has for us. And then he continues on in verse 19, and he says, I died to the law that I might live to God. To be dead to the law means to not be a victim of its effects or a victim of the penalty. Paul said that I am dead to that, that I have left that. And if I rebuild that, then I put myself back under that system and that world. To be dead to it is to be out from under its judgment, the condemnation, the shame, guilt, and punishment, and verdict that says guilty. And then the second and last thing this morning, and I'll be done is not only, not only that we would stop rebuilding broken walls, but we would decide, and that's a key word, decide to live instead of settling with the dead. Decide to live instead of live, settling with the dead. In Galatians 2.20, he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ in Jesus through trusting his work rather than my own, his death is now my spiritual death, right? His physical death is my spiritual death. That that former me 
that got in the way, that former me that was by nature rebellious, that former me that was condemned to an eternity of separation from a holy God and the experience of his glory and his beauty and his promises. That when we trust in Jesus, like Paul, we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. That the Jake that made mistakes, that the Jake that was condemned, that the Jake that is punished, that the Jake that the declaration and the verdict was guilty, that that person died on the cross with Jesus with all my sins, with all my, my, the, the, the condemnation and the shame that comes with it. That that person is dead and gone. It wasn't enough to remove the shackles. It wasn't enough to just clean us. I had to die. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live. So what has died? Our former selves have died. Former has died. And the former object of my faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, the object of our faith is always ourselves. Even when there are things in this world we depend on, ultimately when our faith is not in Christ, our faith is in ourselves. Because we're trusting in ourselves to make the right decisions, to be uh, discerning. We're trusting in ourselves to choose right. We're trusting in ourselves to have the strength. We're trusting in ourselves to have the power to do what we believe should be done. But the Bible tells us when we have put our faith in Christ, we within ourselves have actually been nailed on the cross with Christ, and that former self is dead and gone. Romans 6, and you can write this down and maybe go back to it later. Romans 6, verses 6 through 11. Paul just really presents this so beautifully. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider, that's where we have to understand and we have to rest in as Christians. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God says that in Christ our, our sin is dead and gone. Our former, former self is dead so that we would not be bound by sin. We would not be enslaved by sin. But not only are we dead in the death of Christ, but also in his life we are resurrected and we can live in the confidence and power of a holy God so that we would live in that life. But the Bible tells us, Paul tells the Romans there, he says, but you must consider yourself alive. You must consider yourself alive. Too often we are resting with the dead. Too often we are living in the dead spaces where we once were. Because maybe it's comfortable, maybe it's less, uh, less uh, confrontational for maybe our family or the people that we interact with or our culture. My God, our culture, how confrontational it is with those who truly stand for Christ. I mean, it, and it's only going to get worse. And so if a lot of times we, be, we get afraid in those moments and we want to go back to those dead spaces because at least when I was dead, there was no struggle, there was no confrontation, there was no pressure for me. No, but as a Christian, not that any of those actions get us to a holy God, but because we are in Christ, he says that we're not just dead in Christ anymore. He says, but we are living. 
We are living in Christ. Luke 20 verse 38 says, Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says in verse 20 of Galatians 2, Christ who lives in me. It is a living union. I do not have a dead Christ in me. I have a living Christ in me that brings me out into the world, that brings me into the space of my family, that even in my failures, I'm reminded that, you know what, even though maybe I've failed in this moment, that the power that keeps me going is not the power of Jake, but it's the power of God. And that's what continues to encourage me to work. It doesn't make me rest more. It doesn't make me pull back. It doesn't make me say, well, I don't have to be a good dad. I don't have to be a good husband. I don't have to be a good nurse. I don't have to be a good anything because Christ has already saved me. No, it tells me because Christ has died for me, because Christ lives in me, I am going to live in him and live for him and live for his glory. It is not an excuse to sin, church. It is an excuse to live. Because God is not the God of the dead. God is not the God of the resting. God is not the God of the lazy. God is the God of the living. And he says in verse 20, I love how Paul says this. In Galatians 2, 20, he says, This life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I love how Paul reminds us that God has not robbed us of our individuality because he lives in us and lives through us because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul recognizes and God recognizes that in this flesh, in this broken, fallible flesh, I live by faith, not in myself, but in the Son of God. We still carry so much of ourselves, the good and the bad, into our new life, but the only way to live the life that he has for us is by choosing to live with the living, with Christ, and not settling with the dead, my old self. I'm only able to live in this confidence when my faith is in Christ. Church, we are only as strong as the object of our faith. We are only as strong as the object of our faith, and if we are the object of our faith, I don't know about you, but I'm weak. I'm faulty. More times than not, I choose the wrong thing. I think the wrong thing. I act the wrong way. If my faith was in me, I can promise you I would have given up a long time ago. And you know, there are people in our churches, there are people who call themselves Christians that are still being taught to have faith in themselves and still feel like that they are never going to accomplish anything and that nothing's worth living for. Listen, listen, as a Christian, if we ever get to a place where our confidence has moved back to ourself and our faith is in ourselves, we will be so immobilized that we will see things fall apart around us because we are not allowing God to use us in the spaces that he has for us. And then where is that strength gather, gathered from? Why do we have faith in the Son of God? Paul says, I will tell you why we have faith in the Son of God. I will tell you why the faith in God is stronger than faith in myself. In verse 220, he says, because the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I love how he uses the word loved in past tense. He says that it's not that he loves me now because of anything I've done. It's not that he's going to love me any better because of any better that I've been, Mav. Not because of any better that I've done. But he says he loved me. He loved me. And earlier on in this book, in the book of Ephesians, when we were talking about it, he said that he loved me before the foundation of the earth. That the moment we put our confidence in the holy God and have faith in the saving work of Jesus, we can walk and rest in the confidence 
confidence that God intended this for me from the beginning. That for the, from the foundation of the earth, God intended this for me. And that I can rest in the confidence to know that. That he loved me. And that he gave himself for me. Paul, uh, Jesus died for Paul long before Paul knew Jesus. Church, Jesus died for you long before we even remotely acknowledged him. Now we live because we are loved. Church, we live because we are loved. Romans 8, 37, he says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus loved me upon the cross. He loved me in the manger of Bethlehem. He loved me before ever the earth was. There was never a time when Jesus did not love his people. Hebrews 7, 11. You know, in this last verse, in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if me, uh, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Hebrews 7.11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood or through the law, what further need would, we, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? What, what purpose would Jesus have been? If we could be perfect through the law, if we could get close to God through the law, what purpose was Jesus' life? Paul says that Christ would have died for no purpose if we could accomplish it in our own. But salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. Not a work of us following the rules, not a work of us bringing any specific offering before him. It is a work of God, and it's through trusting in the work of Christ on the cross that we find ourselves there. So why does this matter for us as we finish this morning? Martin Luther, who over 500 years ago questioned a set of teachings and a, a way of following God's Word and utilizing God's Word, he said, to give a short definition of a Christian, a Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer chalks sin. Because of his faith in Christ, this doctrine brings comfort to the conscience in serious trouble. God has given us life to live, church. God has, even in our frail, faulty flesh, we have an opportunity to live. And as the prophet Isaiah would speak to the children of Israel, as God would speak through him in Isaiah 43, 6, and I encourage you to go back to Isaiah 43 and read through this again. But he tells the children of Israel as he's leading them toward redemption and restoration, he tells them, he says, do not withhold. Do not withhold. He has told them leading up to this point, he says, I have created you, I have formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, and you are... And he says in verse 5 of, of Isaiah 43, he says, I am with you. Not only have I done all these things for you, but I am with you. And because I am with you, what does God tell him in, that, in verse 6? He says, do not withhold. Do not withhold. And so to the skeptic or the unbeliever, this is what God says. The, 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 the person with questions, the person with doubts, God is, God is doing a work in you and he is inviting you. Do not withhold. Do not let failures or fears hold you back. There is mercy and forgiveness available. There is no admission fee other than just the admission of our own need of rescue. To the unbeliever or the skeptic, he says, do not withhold. 
to the believer who is already saved by the grace of God, he says, do not withhold. Do not withhold. We have a new life in Christ to live for God. And so his command to us is to start living. Don't hold back. Use your talents. Use your gifts. Uh, d- use your ability. You know, too often in church we say things like, well, that's just not my calling. Listen, if God's gifted you with something and you have a talent for something, it doesn't matter if you feel like it's your calling or not. We have an obligation to use the things that we have for the glory of God. We need to stop taking that word calling and using it out of context to be an excuse not to do something because we don't feel like it. We cannot hold back our abilities because we hold back, rust will happen due to being unused or the potential unused, and it'll be wasted, and it'll become so much harder. You have that bike that you've had sitting out in your yard for like a year, and you decide one day, maybe you're feeling athletic or whatever, and you say, well, I'm going to go ride that bike, right? I'm gonna, it's about time that I do something. I'm saying this because this thought has crossed my mind uh, this week, and, and the poor thing, it was, it was busted, right? It's rusty. The wheels are flat, you know, and so it takes so many, and really, I just gave up, and then a lot of times in our Christian walk, that's what we do because we've neglected something or not use something for so long by the time we decide we're going to start to use it for the glory of God it's so just rusted it's so just unused that we just say it's not worth it man do not hold back church Jesus never withheld let us imitate him in self-denial and self-sacrifice, coming to close communion with a holy God, embracing his blessings and be and begin living and leading in our families, in our relationships, with our spouses, in our work positions, in our schools, wherever we may be, that we would be living to God because God lives in us and God is a God of the living, not the dead. And I'll end with this. In Romans 7, 4, Paul writes this. Likewise, my brothers... He says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We belong to another. And he ends by saying this, in order that, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We may bear fruit for God. Church, we, if you're a believer here this morning, you've been saved for something. You have a gift, you have a talent, you have an ability, you have something you're even remotely good at that God wants to use. And the reality of it is, is that when we step out into this world and we step into the ministry of this church or into our community, we'll have all the plans and all the work that we want to do, but ultimately, like we've sung this morning, God is the one that establishes the work of our hands. God is the one that establishes our steps. So we don't even have to be confident in the perfection of the work or the talent that we have. The Lord says, He establishes the work. He establishes the steps. Let us just be willing. Let us be willing to live. Let us be willing to walk. Do not withhold. If you could leave with any phrase this morning, I pray that in your Christian life, in the context of this local church, if you're listening online in the context of the local church where you're a member of or where you serve at, that we would not withhold, that we would just confidently and and just compassionately, because we're doing it not for ourselves, but for the glory of God and the the good of our neighbor. Because there are people that need to see Christ lived out through believers in our community. Church, there are hurting people in our community. 
There are needy people, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, needy people. In our workplaces, in our schools, in our families. Church, our kids are needy people. They need more than our money and a roof to live in. And food. They need to hear about Jesus from you. They need to hear about Jesus from me. They need to see the gospel played out in our lives and in our relationships. Church, we cannot afford to withhold in our Christian lives. We can't do it. God is too good and the work is too great. And I believe that God will accomplish those things through us here at Crosspoint if we do not withhold. Could that be our prayer this morning?